morning to John 18. We are picking up where we left off last Lord's Day, and we looked last Sunday at the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane there in John 18, 1 through 14. We're picking up this morning and really looking at verses 15 down through verse 27, John 18, 15 through 27. But for the sake of context, I'm going to start reading back in verse 12 this morning. And again, I know you're going to find it helpful to be reading along with me, uh, starting here in John 18, 12. The Apostle John now says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I have taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why did you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him back to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, on March 21st, 1556, Archbishop uh, Cranmer was led to the stake where he was going to be burned for propagating Reformed and Protestant doctrine. He would be burned with those other famous Reformers, Ridley and Latimer, for proclaiming the doctrine of justification by faith alone, for holding to things like sola scriptura and that salvation is in Christ alone, that salvation's not in the church, that it's not in the sacraments, that it's in Jesus. And leading up to March 21st, 1556, when Cranmer was led to be burned at the stake under the order of Mary I, uh, he had been pressured 
by government officials and by the Roman Catholic Church to recant his beliefs in the truth of Scripture. And on four occasions in those pressuring, Archbishop Cranmer recanted his belief in the truth. He wrote out that he denied the Protestant teaching that he had once believed. And a fifth time he was pressured, and he wrote a recantation and a refutation denying the truths of Scripture that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Thinking that he had escaped the persecution of the Roman Catholic Church, Cranmer would be surprised as he was arrested and led to that fire to be burned. And as he was brought forward to be publicly burned for his um, adherence to the truth of Scripture, he wrote these words. These were his final words. He said, Now I come to the great thing which so much troubles my conscience more than anything I have done or said in my whole life, and that is that I have written contrary to the truth. Now I renounce and refuse the things written with my hand, contrary to the truth, which I thought in my heart, but have written for fear of death to save my life. Now listen to this. As he is led to the stake to be burned, Cranmer said, Inasmuch as my hand has offended, writing contrary to my heart, therefore my hand will be punished first, for when I come to the fire, it will be burned first. A very powerful Church historical illustration of one who was a disciple of Christ, who had faithfully served him, who had made his truth known, and yet in the moment under pressure of persecution, under fear of death itself, had recanted, but then God had given grace and had made that great confession again. Now, when we think about that example of Cranmer and his acknowledgement of his denial of Christ in that moment of pressure um, and the pressure of uh, suffering and affliction and martyrdom, our minds ought to go to Simon Peter because Scripture has given us this picture of Peter. Here is the chief apostle of Jesus. Here is the first among equals. This is the one who had been with Jesus for three and a half years, had followed him, had given up everything, had left homes, had left families, had left businesses, had given everything up to follow Jesus. This is Peter who had made that great profession of faith at Caesarea of Philippi. When others asked him, who, do, who is Jesus? And Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter very quickly says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is Peter who said in the upper room to Jesus, "Um, Lord, you will never wash my feet. You are too good for this. And yet Jesus correcting him said, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And this is Peter who in the upper room said, even if all forsake you, I will not. This is impetuous Peter. By the way, don't you dare go using this against me. But if I feel affinity to anybody in the gospel records, it is Simon Peter. He speaks before he thinks. He acts quickly. He is self-reliant. He is overly bold in his own thinking. He thinks that he is going to stand when others fall. And then it is Peter. It is Peter 
denying the Lord three times at the moment, don't miss this, at the moment, at the very moment when Jesus is going to make atonement for the sins of his people, at the very epicenter of redemptive history, when Jesus is going to fulfill all things that men waited for throughout human history, the fulfillment of everything at that moment, Simon Peter is so fearful of a little slave girl that he will deny Jesus with cursing. It's remarkable how quickly Peter buckles under the least threat of the fear of man. His life is not being threatened. He is not being told if he professes anything, such and such is going to happen to him. And at that moment, he buckles under the fear of man and denies Christ three times. Now, we have most recently seen the betrayal of Jesus in the garden, haven't we? These things come right one after the other. The denial of Jesus by Peter comes on the heels of the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. Um, There are many similarities between the betrayal of Jesus by Judas and the denial of Jesus by Peter. Many similarities. And yet there are also many differences. Um, Many years ago, I was reading a theologian who had made the point I'd never thought about this, and um, I've thought about it often over the years, that when you contrast Judas with Peter, he said there are sins that a true believer can commit that an unbeliever can't commit. Judas could betray Jesus, but he couldn't deny the Savior he was trusting in because he wasn't trusting in him. A true believer is capable of committing sins even unbelievers can't. Here, Peter is going to deny the Christ he has already trusted in. Peter is a believer here. Let me just say that. If you ever listen to theologians or pastors that try to say, I don't know, maybe he wasn't, just shut that guy off right away. Peter is clearly a believer. Jesus has affirmed him and confirmed him repeatedly. Jesus has loved him. Jesus has bound himself to him. When Judas went out, Jesus told him, I have chosen you. This is one of Jesus' precious chosen disciples. He said, of all those the Father has given me, I have lost none. Remember, in the garden, he is substituting himself. For Peter, he says to the soldiers, if you've come for me, take me, but let these go. Peter is a believer, and yet Peter is going to fail under great weakness. And in that sense, he is going to become a life lesson for you and me. Um, There is a very clear lesson here that even the believer that looks strong, even the believer who for a time may appear to be strong, is subject to the greatest of weaknesses. Let me say that again. Even a believer who looks strong, even a believer who thinks he is strong or she is strong, yet for a time may be subject to the greatest weakness. Before I even preach this, let me just say this this morning. I imagine, because I I see how other Christians talk about people online and how they falter and things and how everybody stands ready to condemn everybody. My guess would be if you had been there and you had seen Peter denying Jesus, you would have said, he's not a Christian. That's a very, very wrong response to this passage. Instead, we ought to say, if it happened to him, it can happen to me. Let him who thinks he stand, take heed, 
lest he fall, the apostle says. Peter is going to be a life example, especially to those who are spiritually proud. And so I want us to consider just two things this morning as we look at this passage, and especially verses 15 through 27. I want us to first consider Peter's Peter's denial of Jesus. And then secondly, I want us to consider Jesus's defense of his disciples and his doctrine. Peter's denial, Jesus's defense. Well, as I've noted, Jesus has been betrayed. He has been arrested. He has handed himself over. He has given himself over courageously. He is showing himself in the garden to be the one that said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This command I've received from my father. And in the garden, he comes forward not as a helpless victim, but as a conquering redeemer. And remember, in the garden when they came, Jesus said to them, who are you seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. Remember, they fall back. Now, keep in mind that Peter's denial of Jesus is going to be set against what he just witnessed in the garden. Peter would have seen maybe those hundreds of soldiers, armed guards, coming to take Jesus, being blown back off their feet by the word of Jesus saying, I am. The divine name, I am. Peter also saw all the miracles of Jesus. He heard all the teaching of Jesus. He saw officers in John chapter 7 coming to take Jesus, listening to him, and then going back to the chief priests and the Pharisees and saying to them when they said, why didn't you bring him? Because nobody ever spoke like this man. He witnessed everything. He even heard Jesus say to him, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, but when you return to me, go and strengthen your brethren. He had even heard Jesus say to him, before the rooster crows three times, you will deny me that you knew me. Peter has had everything given to him. He has seen everything. And in the garden, he has witnessed the power, the divine authority of Jesus as Jesus is coming courageously to give himself back. And yet, notice, What is Peter doing? Notice verse 15. Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside the door. And then notice verse 18. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal of fire because it was cold. They were warming themselves. Peter was also standing with them and warming himself. Now, We don't know who this other disciple is. It could be the Apostle John. A lot of theologians think it was. It really doesn't matter. Whoever this other disciple was, he was known to the high priest. He had access into the place where Jesus was going to be led as a prisoner to begin his sufferings. And he goes there out of his devotion to Christ And Peter goes with him, and it's very interesting because in the going, and don't miss this, in the going, Peter is actually showing devotion to Christ. He is actually saying, wherever my Savior is, I want to be, even if it's in the place of suffering. He doesn't go and hide. That's commendable. Peter doesn't go and cower in fear. He goes to the very place. And remember, Peter had just cut off the ear 
of the servant of the high priest Malchus in the garden. So Peter has every reason to be worried about his own well-being, and yet he goes because he wants to be with Jesus, and yet he is not invited into the house, and he stays outside. Verse 16, Peter stood outside the door. Now, I want you to try to envision this scene. Here is the palace of the high priest with a courtyard. Here is um, Peter outside at a fire. Jesus is inside. He is very close to where the Savior is, and yet he has put himself far from the Savior. You're meant to understand that picture. He, he is at one and the same time following the Savior sincerely, and yet he has pulled himself back to be with the unbelieving world, as it were. Um, you know, it's interesting that Peter really becomes a parable to us of how we often view the Christian life. You know, Peter at this point thinks, well, I can be devoted to Christ and maybe I can be seen as if I belong with these people out here, outside. He is, he's trying to straddle the fence, as it were. He wants, he wants to be seen as if maybe he's part of that garrison of soldiers and the others that have brought Jesus, while at the same time acting as if he wants to be close to Jesus. Now, that is a very, very common experience for believers. Where, where if we're honest with ourselves, we want to be close to the Savior, but we want the world to like us. Now, if any believer in here this morning were to say in response to that, that's never been true of me, then you need to listen to this sermon. This sermon's for you. <laughs> if you have ever said, that's not me, I'm not trying to be close to Christ and wanting the world to like me, you do not know your heart because what's in Peter's heart is in every one of our hearts by nature. And it can manifest itself in a thousand different ways. And yet John is giving us, as I've noted throughout this, this sermon series, he uses double entendres. He says one thing, and, and there's a physical reality, but then there's a deeper meaning. So he says, notice he repeats it twice, Peter was also standing and warming himself. Notice verse 18, Peter is standing and warming himself. And then notice, again, Verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. John has intentionally mentioned that Peter is there at the fire trying to keep warm. And I think what John wants us to recognize about what's happening in that is that Peter is finding comfort in the world. The same thing that comforts the world Peter is finding comfort in. What a picture. I mean, think about, think about Thomas Cranmer again. He is led to the fire and he sticks his hand in to be burned first because he had written out a recantation of his faith in Christ. He sticks his hand into the fire. Peter is warming himself at the fire. I've always thought there may be no more apropos illustration in Scripture of what it is for us to coddle with the world than this illustration. He is warming himself, trying to keep himself comfortable while the Savior is suffering. Now, um, Peter's doing two things. I've already noted this. One, on one hand, he's trying to keep himself safe from persecution. But on the other hand, he's trying to say that he hasn't forsaken his Lord. He's trying to play both sides, as it were. Um, 
Peter's fall, as I've noted already, is a great example to us. His denial of Jesus is a great example to us. He's going to do it three times. And you get this sense, and and this passage, if you notice this, it begins in verse 15. And then down to verse 18, that's the first denial. Then it focuses on Jesus in his initial questioning and interrogation inside the high priest's house. And then it goes back to Peter. It's like a movie, I don't know, back, old westerns, now back at the ranch. Now let's look at Peter again. Now he's going to deny him two more times. And you get the sense that Peter's getting comfortable with his sin. He's getting comfortable with the fact that he's denied Jesus. And there's a sense where he's going deeper and deeper and deeper into his, his getting comfortable with it. And so much so that we're told by Matthew and Luke that in the last case, he gets so frustrated that he's being asked if he's one of Jesus' disciples that he, he curses and swears that he doesn't know him. I don't know that man. I mean, this is one of Jesus' choice disciples. And, and listen just carefully. At this moment, Jesus needed his disciples. Remember in the garden, he was, he was weighed down in agony, and they were asleep. Remember, Peter fell asleep, and Jesus rose finally, and he said to them, couldn't you just watch and pray with me for one hour? In his holy human soul, not in his divine nature, but in his humanity, Jesus needed the companionship of Peter, James, and John. Remember, he had drawn them away with him to pray with him. They had fallen asleep. Now, now what would the impact of Peter's denial have had on Jesus. Remember last week, if you were here, we said that Judas's denial would have had an impact because others would have seen it and said, well, this Jesus must be a phony because one of his 12 is selling him out for just a few pieces of silver. So the world looks on, if, if you're an unbeliever here today and you listen to Christianity, one of the things that unbelievers do is they look for inconsistencies. They're like, well, I mean, if those Christians were real, they wouldn't do that. All the time, neglecting their need for Christ. That's a really common thing for people to do. Well, they would have done that then. They would have said, well, if he was sincere, one of the 12 wouldn't have betrayed him. Now, I think to add to add hurt to the sufferings of Christ, now another one, now of the 11, is going to deny him publicly. And that also is going to serve to add to the humiliation of Jesus. That those he appointed to be his witnesses won't even witness for him at that moment. The others have forsaken him and fled. Now, there are three or maybe four things that lay behind Peter's denial of Jesus. And I think this is where it's really helpful for us. There are three things, minimally, and and J.C. Ryle points this out. The three things that lay behind Peter's denial of Jesus, number one, was the danger of pride and self-righteousness. Peter thought he could stand. Even if everybody else forsakes you, I will never forsake you. Two minutes later, he's forsaking him. He literally said that in the upper room and then denies him immediately after. He is foolishly self-confident. Number two, he is spiritually lazy. Remember, Jesus had already warned him, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Where should Peter have been when Jesus was taken prisoner? 
he should have been on his knees watching and praying. Instead, he put himself close to Jesus, but closer to the world. And then Ryle points out, it is the influence of the fear of man. Now, I want to camp out on this just briefly. The fear of man, the Proverbs say, is a snare. Um, And every one of us is so easily taken by the fear of man. Why do we not live and speak as becomes the disciples of Christ as we ought to be for an unbelieving world? Notice I said live and speak. Is oftentimes because we fear man. Um, what What a futile thing to fear, and yet it is deeply ingrained in our hearts. We want people to like us. We want approval. We want to be seen as nice. We want to be seen as unjudgmental. We want to be seen as, we, we, we just want to blend in. And, and it's the fear of man that leads us from living fruitful Christian lives. Now, the converse of the fear of man is not belligerent, um, bombastic, um, uh, shouting the truth in the name of courage. That's not the opposite of the fear of man. Remember, when Daniel is being persecuted, he quietly goes up to his room and prays with the window open. So the opposite of the fear of man is not getting on Twitter and Facebook and being as loud as you can about truth. I'm going to press that in. The opposite of the fear of man is not being as loud and belligerent as you can about the truth. It is fearing God and being willing to stand for the truth even when and especially when It's costly. By the way, it doesn't cost you much to blast out truth on social media. I know you want to think it does. It doesn't. Other countries, it may, not in our country. But the fear of the Lord, which is the converse of the fear of man, is being ready and willing to take a faithful stand for Christ, even when and especially when there is a cost in doing so. Peter is buckling, as Ryle said, under pride and self-confidence, under spiritual laziness, and under the fear of man. Now, what should Peter have known about himself that would have kept him from denying Jesus outside of the high priest's court? I would argue, and many writers have argued, that what would have kept Peter from doing what he did was to know his innate weakness. If Peter had recognized that in and of himself he is weak, he would have gone to the Lord for strength. He wouldn't relied on his own flesh, his own commitment, his own profession, his own own, uh, zeal, but he would have gone to the Lord and he said, Lord, I am weak. I need your strength. Listen to this. Hugh Martin, great Scottish theologian who died very young, said this, the Christian's safety is in the knowledge of his weakness. Don't miss this. The Christian's safety is in the knowledge of his weakness, which sends him to the Lord for strength. When I am weak, Paul says, then I am strong. When I am content to see, feel, and own that in myself I am as naturally weak as I am guilty. Don't miss that. When I see, feel, and own in myself 
that I am naturally as weak as I am guilty of my sin and can stand in the day of danger only in another's strength as I stand in the judgment only in another's righteousness. Then and only then will I be induced to seek the strength of my Lord and my Redeemer. But when I am strong in my own thinking, I am weak, and my strength and my pride go before my fall. You see, everything about the Christian life is counterintuitive. If you think you're strong, you're going to end up just like Peter. If you know you're weak and you go to the Lord for strength, he will sustain you and he will say, my power is made perfect in weakness. Um, sometimes, I've told you this, people try to mock Christians and they say Christianity is a, you know, a crutch for the weak. It, and I've said, no, it's a resurrection for the dead, but it is a crutch for the weak. And the fact that people say that and think they're not weak shows the futility of their own hearts. You know, there's an old saying, whenever we read our, our heroes in history and church history and they have flaws because all of them have flaws and half the books that you read don't tell you anything about their flaws because they just want you to celebrate them. But we, but we have a saying in the church, we say, well, you know, he had clay feet. He had clay feet. No, we are entirely clay. You are entirely clay. Every part of you. Simon Peter was entirely clay. Easily broken. Easily falling because he didn't know his weakness. He didn't acknowledge his need for the Lord's strength. He trusted in himself and he feared man. Um, you know, it's interesting. Peter's going to deny Jesus three times, and we know this is not the end of the story because we know the Lord is going to restore him. And there is a contrast between the threefold denial of Peter. And the threefold I am earlier in this chapter. Now, maybe you've never seen this. When Jesus is questioned about who he is in the garden, he says, and it's repeated three times, I am. He gives that affirmation, the divine affirmation, that he is God in the flesh. When Peter is asked three times, he says, I am not. A striking contrast between Christ and Peter I am, I am not. Are you one of his disciples? I am not. And that contrast, I think, is drawn out because the Apostle John is going to want you to see that there is one who never falters. There is one who never fails. There is one who will never deny the truth. There is one who always does what is right. There is one who is going to do what it's right even when it cost him his life and his death on the cross. There is one who is not going to deny the truth on the same night while Peter is denying the truth. And I don't know if you've noticed that. Why does John bookend Peter's denials with Jesus before Annas and Caiaphas? Because he's contrasting the Savior and his faithful confession against the weakness of Peter. And, and Peter's going to learn at the end of the gospel when Jesus restores him that it's all and only in Christ that he can stand. When Jesus gives him that threefold, do you love me, Peter? You know I love you. Do you love me? You know I love you. Do you love me? You know I love you. And 
You know, it's fascinating because Peter is going to learn, and this is the good news for us this morning, that the same Christ who says, whoever denies me before men, him I will deny before my Father, is the same Christ that stoops to bear Peter's sin of denying him and to restore Peter by his grace. And all of that is because of what Jesus is doing inside the high priest's house. I want us to secondly and very briefly look at Jesus' defense. We've seen Peter's denial and now Jesus' defense of his disciples and doctrine. Notice Jesus is brought from Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, to Caiaphas, who was the high priest of the Jews. He is uh, finally questioned in verse 19 about his disciples and his teaching. Now, they are trying to find fault with Jesus on two grounds. One, sedition, that he divided the people, that he was trying to divide and destroy the nation, which is almost humorous because the nation is going to be destroyed in AD 70, not because of what Christ does, but because of the people's rejection of him. All of Jerusalem and Israel are going to be destroyed in AD 70. And yet they are trying to find fault with him, and they're trying to say, you divide the people. Tell us about your disciples. And, and then they're trying to find fault with him for false teaching. You, you teach untrue things. And so they're questioning him both about his disciples and his teaching. And notice that Jesus, as he had been in the garden, in contrast with Peter, is bold as a lion. You know, there's something so marvelous when you watch Jesus on trial. There's no fear. There's no anxiety. He's perfectly calm. He's perfectly measured. If this was you, you'd be done. Just, just ask Thomas Cranmer, who recanted five times the truth he professed before he was taken to the stake. Um, Jesus is bold as a lion. Notice He says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. He is affirming that every every single thing that had substance to his teaching, he made known openly. He He didn't have a covert movement trying to covertly do something to overthrow the government. Jesus was forthright. He was out there. He went forward knowing that they were trying to take him. He walked into the very synagogues where he knew they were plotting to kill him. He taught and he healed. He did everything openly. By the way, that is a great testimony to who Jesus is. Jesus didn't try to gain a political power pact that would somehow give him control like we would do. There is zero political about Jesus. There is nothing in which Jesus is scheming or conniving or trying to come up with some way to get out of this. Jesus is laying himself down in the place of his people, and he is doing so boldly. Notice, he says in verse 21, why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said. They know what I said. And when he said this, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. You know, I often think, What is it going to be like in Judgment Day for that guy? That's a horrific thought. This is, I don't know if you know this, this is the first blow that Jesus physically takes to his body. All for speaking the truth, for being the truth, for affirming the truth. Um... 
or affirming that he's done nothing deserving of this. You know, it's fascinating that Christ can do this at this time because he has lost everything. I want to read this to you. At the pinnacle of his ministry, Jesus had no home, no wife, no transportation, no building. His treasurer betrayed him. His lead disciple denied him, and the others fled from him. On the cross, his father forsook him. Yet he didn't shudder back from what he came to do. And marvel of marvels, he didn't lose his temper once. He didn't lose his temper once. He didn't shift gears into victim mode. He is a victim. He's led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shearers. He's taken from prison and judgment. Who can declare his generation? He's about to be cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of his people, he's going to be stricken. He's going to have his grave made with the wicked, but with the rich in his death. And Isaiah says, because he had done no wrong, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And yet Jesus is doing this to show you that by himself, he is going to purge, purge his people from their sins. Why is Jesus just giving himself over? And how can he do it so courageously? Because he is going by himself alone to purge you and me of our sins. What glorious news. Why is Jesus subjecting himself to this? Because he's going to die for Peter's denial of him at that very moment. Why is he going to the cross? Because of all the sin that you and I have done, do on a daily basis, or will do. That's why Jesus is there, courageous, allowing himself to be struck, allowing himself to be falsely accused. Notice verse 23, Jesus said, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Um... I want us to just step back and reflect on this account this morning. When we think about our own Christian lives and experiences, the missed opportunities we've had, the times that we've been in situations where we know we could have borne witness to Christ, but we failed, we faltered. Um, what do we do? You know, Peter would have had a deep, sense of the guilt of his falling on his conscience. How do I know that? Because all true believers feel the weight of their sin. They feel the uneasiness of it. But we also know that because when Jesus just cast a glance at Simon Peter, Peter remembers that he said, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me. And then he weeps bitterly in repentance. You see, Peter was carrying the burden of the guilt of his sin, and yet Jesus wants us to see that there is somebody who carries that guilt for us. Why does Jesus not cast Peter off forever? He denied him. I told you already. Jesus said, whoever denies me, him I will deny before my father. Well, what if you've denied him? What if you have failed to speak up when you should have? I have done that. You have done that. The good news is, Jesus has atoned for all the sins of his people. 
even the denials of believers who falter in their weakness, and and he is bent on restoring us. Isn't that glorious? Jesus is going to put Peter right back to use. You know what? If, If I had denied Jesus publicly, if I had an interview on some on some television channel, and you guys were all excited that your pastor was on TV, and they asked me if I thought Jesus was the only way to God, and I said, well, I don't know, you know, there might be other ways. You guys would fire me and make sure I was stripped of my credentials. Yes, you would. Peter did that and worse than that, and Jesus restores him, and Jesus puts him to immediate use. He says, if you love me, go feed my sheep. He doesn't say, now, Peter, we're going to need a two-year probation period to make sure you're not warming yourself at any more fires. He immediately takes Peter, as grievous as that sin is, and he will restore him, and he will put him to bigger and better use. Isn't that glorious? Struggled with the fear of man. Jesus is not done sustaining you, restoring you, healing you, redeeming you, and using you again. And yet it is a warning for us, and I just want to press that home this morning, that there's no need for us to fear what the world thinks. You know what? The world can be as harsh and as cumulatively oppressive as it can possibly become, and and every segment of this world is going to give an answer to Christ on Judgment Day. And there's no reason to fear what man thinks. Remember what Jesus said, Do not fear man who can kill the body, but after that has nothing more he can do. I'll tell you who can fear. Fear him who, after he is destroyed, can throw soul and body into hell. I say to you, Jesus said this, not Paul. Loving Jesus, gent and mild, said, I tell you, fear him. When we look at Peter, we ought to say, you know what? I am just as weak as Peter. But my Lord Jesus wants to give me boldness in my soul to be faithful in professing him before a watching world. Because at the end of the day, the Jesus on trial is the only Jesus that can save sinners from their sin. The Jesus that Peter is denying outside the high priest's house is the only savior of sinners. He's it. That's it. He is the only way to God. He says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you know him? Do you know the Lord Jesus? I'd ask you this morning. That's a question only you can answer. Do you know him? Have you come to him? Have you trusted in him? And if you are trusting in him and you have realized the weakness of your flesh, and maybe you have faltered like Peter, I would encourage you this morning that that Jesus who has redeemed you is not going to let you go. He may make you feel the pain of your fall and your sin, the sting of our sin. He will do that. But he will restore us in love because he has atoned for all of our failings and weaknesses and sins and rebellions. Um, You know, it's interesting. That fire that Peter was warming himself at, it would have been out in a couple hours. Whatever comforts we find in the world, they're passing, fleeting, momentary, empty. But Christ is the eternal Christ who stood courageously where Peter was denying him and gave himself over to bring his people to glory forever. You know, when we think about a Thomas Cranmer and the Lord had mercy on him after he had denied Christ so grievously five times, 
The Lord had mercy on him, and he shoved that hand with which he had written that denial down into the fire and said, this will be burned first. Because Cranmer realized that whatever it was that caused him to fear man was nothing in comparison to who Christ is. Remember that story about Polycarp, the great early Christian martyr. He was a disciple of Irenaeus, who was a disciple of John, who wrote this gospel. And at the very end of his life, he's being martyred, and they asked him to recant. He said, 80-some years I have served Christ. He has always been faithful to me. How can I deny him now? And if we are in the habit of realizing who Christ is and what he's done for us when we're in those situations where we are tempted, but we look at the cross and we see what he's done for us, We cry out, if he could suffer for me, I can suffer for him. My Lord, if you could suffer for me, I can suffer for you. Um, Let that be an encouragement to you this morning if you're a believer. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us, and then we'll come to the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the word that you have given us, and we thank you even for the fall of Simon Peter, that it becomes a warning to us, but also an instructive life lesson to us. We do pray that you would sustain us when we may be tempted to deny you. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us that same restorative grace when we have faltered. We pray that you would make us a people who arm ourselves with the reality and knowledge that we are weak, but that you are strong. Lord, we pray that you would help us off of our self-righteousness and pride, our spiritual laziness, and our fear of man. We ask that you would make us a people who watch and pray lest we enter into temptation. And we pray, our God, above all things, that you would make us to see the great defense and boldness of our Lord Jesus suffering for us, giving himself over for us in all of his innocence and sinlessness. Father, make us to see the one who was made sin for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.